A happy spring to all of you. Nick Deolius bringing you episode 9696 of The Far Middle. Hey, a quick happy birthday wish to one of my all-time favorite Pittsburghers, and without a doubt, my all-time favorite jazz guitarist, George Benson. I believe Mr. Benson is now 80 years young, a great milestone birthday, and he's come certainly a long way from playing ukulele as a kid in Pittsburgh's Hill District. Okay, to our dedication for number 96 in the world of sports, we're going to go in an unconventional direction for this one. I forgot about this, but my memory was refreshed when I started to noodle around ideas for our dedication. And what got my attention for our dedication was being reminded that in 1996, we saw for the first time in a quarter of a century, the Baseball Hall of Fame deciding to admit zero players to its club based on the voting. Now, I remember when that occurred back in 96 and how strange I thought it looked. There was truly no player that was worthy to be admitted into the Hall of Fame, really, And it still seems actually quite weird today. And that's where I came up with the idea of dedicating episode 96 to not so much the year 1996 when no players were admitted into the Hall of Fame, but instead to the baseball players that today are not in the Hall of Fame, but have the career accomplishments that would warrant it. And this actually gets interesting when you break it down. Now, let me say at the start, I'm excluding players who have retired but are clearly going to get into the Hall of Fame soon. So an example would be Ichiro. So put them aside. The first group of players are ones who clearly have the career accomplishments that warrant a place in Cooperstown, but they carry some baggage and not of the steroid variety that have kept them out. So first on this list is Pete Rose, the all-time hit king, and also, by the way, the all-time games played king. Yes, I know he bet on baseball when he was a player manager, but consider what we've seen from others in the Hall of Fame or soon to be in the Hall of Fame when it comes to personal behavior and decisions. And Pete Rose has served quite a lengthy sentence for his exclusion from the Hall of Fame for a period now that stretches into decades. Let's get him into Cooperstown. And there is also Shoeless Joe Jackson, another all-time great, who has served an even lengthier sentence than Pete Rose. And by the way, it was never proven that Shoeless Joe played a role in fixing the World Series in 1920. A .356 lifetime batting average, enough said, get him into Cooperstown. How about Kurt Schilling? Never tied to steroids despite playing in the steroid era. Bloody sock legend, but he is a Republican who is outspoken, and that is a no-no with a big majority of journalists who are Hall of Fame voters. Schilling has some hard, even extreme views on politics, no doubt about it, but keeping a deserving player out of the Hall of Fame because of their political views, that smacks of McCarthyism from the 1950s. Get him into Cooperstown. Now, once you're past Kurt Schilling and Pete Rose and Shoeless Joe Jackson, you start to enter into another category of all-time great players that are not in the Hall of Fame for a very specific common reason. And that, of course, is the heavily suspected or proven use of steroids. Mark McGuire, um, Sammy Sosa, they fall into this category. Obviously, they were quite impressive power hitters uh, in their day. And what's really wild about this category is that there are three players who may have been arguably the greatest at their positions ever who are not in the Hall of Fame and may never get into the Hall of Fame because of being tied to steroid use. So Roger Clemens, he's on the mound, of course, seven, seven Cy Youngs, third all-time in strikeouts, the prototypical power pitcher. But you take alleged steroid use and couple it with his propensity to be a bit of a jerk from time to time, and you have one of baseball's all-time great pitchers sitting outside Cooperstown looking in. You've got Alex Rodriguez at short and third. 
he averaged averaged over 40 home runs a season in his career. He would have hit 700 home runs if he didn't retire early, but steroid use has dogged him, and he is outside looking in. And then, last but not least, is who might have been the greatest baseball player of all time, at least statistically, and that, of course, is Barry Bonds. Like Clemens, not a very likable guy, and also tied to alleged steroid use, the single-season home run king, the all-time home run king, first in career walks, and the only person I believe of the 400 home run and 400 stolen base club. But he didn't stop there because he then became the founding and, of course, only member of the 500 home run and 500 stolen base club. What's a shame about Bonds is that he would have been a first ballot Hall of Famer, in my opinion, if he never even touched steroids. Yes, the dedication to episode 96, it goes to the Baseball Hall of Fame not having an induction class of 1996 and highlighting the importance in life of perspective and personal decision-making. I assess these all-time greats with the benefit of perspective. The fact is that cheating has been part of baseball for over 100 years, right or wrong, and there are much more than a few unsavory and seriously flawed characters in the Hall of Fame today. So I come to the conclusion that Pete Rose and Shoeless Joe and Kurt Schilling, they should be admitted to the Hall immediately, and if any of them did wrong, at least Rose did for sure, but if any of them did wrong beyond Rose, They serve their time and their sentence. But then there is the personal decision-making aspect of this episode's dedication. If Bonds and Clemens and A-Rod did what they allegedly did, along with McGuire and Sosa, how should they be judged? I think that's a tougher one than Shoeless Joe and Schilling and Pete Rose for me. But again, perspective. Players in my beloved era of baseball of the 1970s, they used uppers all the time for edge. Gaylord Perry used illegal substances on the ball when pitching throughout his entire career. Pine tar on the bat of George Brett, who's in the Hall of Fame. Where do you draw the line? I think it requires more passage of time. Not now, it's too soon. But like Rose and Schilling and Joe Jackson, the time will come where enough is enough, and in perspective, a reasonable person comes away knowing that Bonds, A-Rod, and Clemens should be in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Sports mirrors life, and that's why we love sports. Life's complicated and messy and ugly at times, just like the induction class or lack thereof in 1996 and some of the names outside Cooperstown and looking in today. Here's to perspective and personal decision-making and hoping that we all successfully apply the proper level of both in life. And, you know, this is what most of us love about sports. It's based off of head-to-head competition, and at its best, it represents a true meritocracy. So when a player or a team looks for an unfair advantage or an edge, it places the legitimacy of the team and the player, and in some instances, the sport itself, in peril. And we'll make our first connection in episode 96 to a parallel in the world of government and politics. Let's go back to the late 1800s and talk about Teddy Roosevelt before he became president. In 1888, he was a heavy campaigner for Republican Benjamin Harrison, who ended up winning the presidential election. Now, Roosevelt was hoping for a plum appointment in the Harrison administration, but instead was offered an obscure post in the Federal Civil Service Commission. And a lot of his friends encouraged him to turn down the post, but Teddy Roosevelt saw it as an opportunity to establish his reputation as a reformer and a proponent of meritocracy and a battler of corruption. So he joined the Civil Service Commission and he proceeded to go on a tear. So let me back up a few years. President Garfield, he died from an assassin's bullet 
And the assassin was a deranged individual who was upset that he wasn't offered a job in government under the spoils system. Now, that led Congress to pass a reform act that was designed to replace the spoils system with a meritocracy when it came to filling jobs in the federal government. The idea was to go from who you know, right, and who you knew to what you knew for a more effective government. And Roosevelt loved the intention of moving to a meritocracy, but he knew that the people were still not being hired into government jobs based on merit despite the Reform Act. So he knew that federal jobs were viewed more as prizes to be handed out by the victors in elections or given in exchange for bribes or to curry favor. And he saw his participation on the Civil Service Commission as an opportunity to truly enforce the Reform Act as intended and to instill a meritocracy across the staffing of the federal government. He basically ended up taking on machine politics. He went after post offices and custom houses, particularly going after managers who would sell answers to interview exams uh, to applicants and managers who would demand a percentage of a staffer's wages be kicked back in exchange for granting the job. And this experience played a critical role in Teddy Roosevelt embracing the role of reformer, a role that he later expanded on a national stage as president and as a trust buster. I've always had mixed feelings about Teddy Roosevelt as a president. Um, there were certainly things to love about him, you know, his persistence on meritocracy and his ability to overcome personal ailments, along with living quite the vigorous life are examples of, of what you would love about Roosevelt. But he also came across to me when I read about him as a bit of a megalomaniac, and he seemed to love the idea of the glory of war, which may be the ultimate oxymoron, because war, of course, is far from glorious. Now let's make another connection. Going from Teddy Roosevelt in the late 1800s, when he started to form his reputation and brand as a reformer, focused on meritocracy and government, to today's federal government and how key positions are either appointed or staffed. I fear that our government has steered far, far away from where Teddy Roosevelt was looking to take it in the late 1800s when it comes to how we go about filtering and selecting individuals to fill key positions. It doesn't matter if it's an entry-level position within the day-to-day -day workings of the federal government, uh, for a management slot within the federal bureaucracy, or for an appointed cabinet position within the executive branch of the federal government, or even how Supreme Court justices are selected for nomination and consideration by the Senate these days. All too often, these decisions today, they're not being made based on experience and skill sets and talent or under a meritocracy. Instead, the decisions are being made to curry favor politically with public unions and the like, or to pursue faithfully some ideology like that of the left and environmentalism, or to satisfy an optic when it comes to pure physical diversity. And that approach, it dilutes the effectiveness of government, and ineffective government gets exposed at the worst possible times during crises. We see that playing out today across government. Think of key cabinet positions and what those individuals are focused on versus where the risk and challenges lie for the American people. Was there even a scintilla of merit based on those appointments? I worry quite a bit about our military as well and whether it has the best possible leadership and team in place at a time when you've got China and Russia and Iran and North Korea all looking to probe and to take advantage of vulnerabilities. And this is not, and don't confuse it with a knock on uh, or a criticism of looking to widen diversity. What I'm saying is that the most important form of diversity is diversity of thought and background, or should I say maybe diversity of perspective, since we were talking about perspective earlier. 
if you pursue that type of diversity or those types of diversity first, you'll be able to construct a more than able team. And guess what? Physical diversity will be an almost guaranteed added bonus and natural result. And that's what successful businesses do when it comes to building teams. And the same for sports teams that want to win championships. But a business or team that is being constructed with a different driving priority other than meritocracy and diversity of thought or perspective is going to inevitably languish in a competitive environment when they go up against the better. The subject of meritocracy and competition on teams and government and sports and business brings us to the next connection. I want to talk about letting competition drive the best in energy systems versus mandating a spoils system that would have driven Teddy Roosevelt nuts. Let's talk about power grids and PJM in particular, which covers Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Maryland. Winter storm Elliott hit this past Christmas Eve in 2022, and it stressed our already stressed grid when temperatures plunged drastically and wind chills set new records. Now, the PJM grid didn't fail, but it was under some serious stress. And the grid was stressed because environmentalism and those in power who adhere to that religion, it dictated that coal power plants and nuclear plants be retired and that natural gas power generation be stifled. The environmental ideology strangled the most competitive bedrocks of the power grid. And then the followers of the religion, they mandated their desired optics of form of power generation to be applied at scale, namely wind and solar. A spoil system was imposed upon the energy network. That's a guaranteed recipe for power grid disaster at the worst times, meaning when it gets very hot in summer and very cold in winter. And that's what happened when Winter Storm Elliott hit this past Christmas Eve in the PJM power grid. Now we see the blame game starting, coming off the near crisis of Elliott, where the true root causes of why all of a sudden we must worry about grids, those true root causes ironically are trying to pin blame on the solutions. I will get to that in a minute. But first, understand that natural gas saved the PJM grid during Winter Storm Elliott. That's a fact that I'm understating because natural gas didn't just save the PJM grid last Christmas Eve. Natural gas saved lives. Natural gas fueled more electricity during this historic cold snap than any other fuel source in Pennsylvania, which is the heart of the PJM grid. No Pennsylvania consumer went without power during the Arctic blast thanks to natural gas. Over 7 million Pennsylvanians are fortunate enough to have direct access to natural gas or propane for home heating. And guess what? None of them suffered an outage or went without heat during the Christmas Eve cold spell in late 2022. And it gets even more compelling for the value of natural gas during peak grid times. Because of natural gas, the PJM grid was able to export power, thousands of megawatts, to other regions of the nation in desperate need of it during the cold blast. Appalachian natural gas saved Americans and other states from being left in the cold, literally. And all this was delivered by natural gas despite PJM severely underprojecting weekend demand hours prior to the cold snap. The grid was caught flat-footed, but natural gas gave PJM a fighting chance to respond quickly. Those are the facts about PJM and natural gas. But there are environmental groups that are looking to fool the public and force an agenda. A new sneaky technique of environmentalists these days is what I dub the tame and blame campaign. And we're seeing it applied in explaining the PJM grid performance during Winter Storm Elliott by the Code Redders. So step one of tame and blame is to tame or outright stifle reliable, affordable, and domestic energy like natural gas. 
stop the construction of pipelines and private investment flows into those types of infrastructure projects, bar hookups of natural gas to real estate developments, slow permits for more drilling to a trickle so that supply of natural gas is constrained, and most notably, force reliance on the unreliable, mandates and wasteful subsidy for wind and solar so that natural gas gets pushed out not by the competitive free market, but under the false cover of tackling climate change. Do any of these things sound familiar? They should to you constant listeners, because you see the same tactics, not just in the PJM grid, but also in Texas, with the California grid, in New York, in the UK, and in the EU. Now, step two of tame and blame is the blame part. So after the experts make these moves, the grid becomes increasingly unreliable and weakened. When demand soars during a heat wave or a cold snap, the grid starts to crack due to these policies. And the environmental movement blames the very thing that once provided grid stability and that they stifled. In the case of PJM with Storm Elliott, they blame natural gas with a straight face and with no fear of consequence. We must get educated and we must educate others on the facts. If we allow natural gas to fairly compete and grow with private investment and innovation, then no more grid weakness anywhere. But if we keep relying on the unreliable and the unscalable and the costly and the intermittent and the foreign sourced forms of wind and solar, the grid is going to break. It's not a matter of if, but simply a matter of when. Constant listeners, let's put a stop to the tame and blame campaign. Let natural gas do its thing for America. The performance and near miss of the PJM grid during Storm Elliott last Christmas had exposed yet again a few, six to be exact, stark truths about wind and solar at scale across the PJM grid and just about any other grid in the United States. So let's go through those six um, truths. First, wind and solar are not cost competitive, not even close. That's why they need endless subsidy and protection. You take a look at your electricity bills today versus a few years ago. The increase is largely due to climate policies mandating wind and solar. Second, wind and solar are inherently intermittent and unreliable. Last Christmas Eve, when the temps plunged below zero across the PJM grid, there was obviously no solar power and little, if any, wind, both useless when you need them the most. Third truth, there is not a solar panel array in America today that can 100% guarantee it was made without slave or child labor. So you all remember blood diamonds, but they're back, but they're just in a new form on a roof near you. Fourth, onshore wind, it's killing scores of endangered birds and bats. Offshore wind may be killing whales. Sadly, killing animals may be the only reliable thing about wind power at scale these days. The fifth truth, as we've discussed many times on the far middle, both wind and solar, they have supply chains that are controlled by China. You can't onshore those supply chains, no matter how often politicians tell such fairy tales. Plain and simple, supporting wind and solar at scale is supporting China. We need to keep making that point to anyone thinking that running to wind and solar are in our nation's self-interest. And last but certainly not least, it's quite ironic that these scopes one through three life cycle carbon footprints of wind and solar are massive and much larger than the life cycle carbon footprints on natural gas fire generation. It's another common far middle issue that we've discussed in the past. Now, these six um, truths, they are not pretty. Wind and solar at scale, they're serial grid killers. They knocked off the grids of the EU and the UK and California and Texas, and now they're stalking the grid of PJM. We have to stop the science from commandeering science, 
then we have to not allow China's self-interest subsume America's self-interest. I posted three short videos discussing the PJM grid and Storm Elliott situation on Twitter. Um, you can view those at Nick Deolius. I encourage you to follow me on Twitter. Um, you can also see them on LinkedIn under Nick Deolius, and feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'd love to, to connect with you. And I've also got a new YouTube channel that we built and just got up and running under the name Nick Deolius. So feel free to follow any of them or connect with me on them. And I hope that you are stimulated by the content. Yep, when the climate policies of the left start to infiltrate the infrastructure of the grid, cracks are going to appear quickly. The same can be said with our next connection to make, which jumps to cracks that are appearing not just in the power grids, but in another major asset category in the geographic bastions of the left these days, which is office real estate in America's major cities. Now let's start with a quick inventory of the various tactics that the left has used in America's major cities the past few years. That tackling of climate change obsession of the left, it certainly is hurting American cities by stressing their grids and raising electricity prices and stoking inflation that we haven't seen levels of such since the 1970s. But there's a much uh, more set of problems within our cities that they are being burdened with. High taxes that squeeze and push out the middle class. An easy on crime approach, right, that skyrockets violent and property crimes. The legalization of just about anything with no enforced rules, which is creating a drug epidemic. Building codes, again, to supposedly tackle climate change, but in the end do nothing other than jack up rents. And last but not least, draconian and extended pandemic shutdowns that made remote work become the permanent norm. And the remote work, it killed off retail businesses in the downtown areas because there's no more patrons. Once the draconian shutdowns were finally lifted, companies have left downtown or their workers refused to come back into the office. The left made what was supposed to be the temporary, the permanent. Well, now the chickens, as Malcolm X once famously stated, are coming home to roost. Signs are adding up that major urban office landlords are defaulting on their debt at increasing rates, and that should be of major concern. One of the largest investment managers of office buildings recently defaulted on three quarters of a billion dollars in debt that was tied to two skyscrapers in downtown Los Angeles. Another real estate firm is negotiating with creditors to restructure debt on a 34-story office tower in lower Manhattan. And similar stories are adding up from coast to coast between New York and Los Angeles. Experts estimate that anywhere from 5 to 10 office towers each month are added to the list of properties deemed to be at risk of defaulting on their debt. What's the culprit beyond what we listed? Well, there are a few catalysts. First, debt that is maturing on these office towers, it has to be refinanced. And that refinancing is going to be much more expensive than what the debt that it is replacing was financed at. That's because interest rates are increasing, which is going to increase the burden of debt servicing cost on the balance sheets of those office tower owners. But why are interest rates rising? Well, that goes back to being caused by inflation flaring up, whose root cause can be traced to all those wonderful energy and climate policies as we foolishly tilt at windmills while trying to tackle climate change. That's why we made the connection between the PJM power grid stress and growing office tower debt defaults in major cities. Climate change policies are stressing both grid capacity of power poles as well as balance sheets of urban office tower companies. But there are other root causes to the growing list of urban office debt default casualties. The biggest one goes back to those draconian shutdowns during COVID that just about every American city experienced. The unreasonable extension of time that they lasted 
It motivated and conditioned and it trained both employers and employees to desire to avoid heading into the city to go to work at an office, which means occupancy rates are going to be roughly half the level in major office towers that it was before pandemic. Tech sector layoffs that have been accumulating are only making occupancy rates worse. A well-known real estate services firm is projecting that the United States will end the decade with a record 1.1 billion square feet of vacant office space, which is a substantial increase to say the least compared to the less than 700 million square feet of vacant space in 2019. So a bad situation is getting worse. The paltry occupancy rates in these office towers, they have a couple of follow-on effects. So first, tenants desire less space than they did before, assuming that they want to stay in the office tower they were in before a pandemic hit. So when the lease is up, the office tower owner is going to be facing a significantly lower occupancy rate, even if the office owner was able to retain all their tenants. The second follow-on effect of low occupancy rates is that those retail tenants that we mentioned, you typically find them on the ground floors of major office buildings. They've been driven out of business and into bankruptcy as we said, because no one comes to work in the office anymore. And even if people did return to the office, the retail shop owner and the tenant would have a heck of a time being able to find workers to staff the business across the work week. So empty retail spaces, they create a double whammy for the office tower owner. Less, t- less rents from uh, fewer tenants, right? And yet another reason for other office tenants to not want to return to that building because you don't have the retail options that you once had. Now, what's exposed with this looming recession, or perhaps worse yet, depression, we'll have to see how bad this gets, in the urban office tower real estate market and debt portfolio, is that $1.2 trillion of debt in the United States is backed by office buildings. Much of that massive debt portfolio is tied to office buildings in major downtown areas and is likely tech-heavy with respect to tenants as tech is going through its own recession. And I'm guessing based on our prior discussions in an earlier episode of The Far Middle that much of that $1.2 trillion portfolio is tied to LEED-certified or so-called green buildings. Lots to think about for sure. Some of you know the rock group Led Zeppelin, and you know they had a great song, one of my favorites, When the Levee Breaks. That's off the epic Led Zeppelin IV Zoso album. And the opening line of lyrics is, if it keeps on raining, the levee's going to break. Well, if the left keeps rolling, the grid is going to break. And if the left keeps rolling, the debt portfolio is going to break. Now that I mentioned it, and considering we're coming down a home stretch of episode 96, let's connect to Led Zeppelin and their fourth album. It was released in November 1971. And today it stands as the second best-selling album of the entire 1970s. The only album that has sold more copies than Led Zeppelin IV is Pink Floyd's The Wall. And the last time I checked the stats, it was a pretty close race or competition between the two for the top spot. And by the way, Led Zeppelin IV sold 22 million copies. And it's the fourth best-selling album of all time. So second best of the 70s, neck and neck with uh, The Wall and fourth best all time. And one last bonus connection before we depart ways for the week. The same day that Led Zeppelin IV was released, which was November 8, 1971, we saw the town of Berkeley in Northern California declare itself by ordinance to be America's first sanctuary city. Now, Berkeley hasn't changed its ways much over the past 50 plus years, but think about how many other American cities have blindly followed Berkeley's lead 
in what it is now manifesting in with respect to all those challenges that we discussed that are mounting across our great cities. Okay, constant listeners, go play some George Benson or Led Zeppelin. Let me know if you prefer George Benson or Jimmy Page on guitar. Um, two all-time greats in their respective genres. Till next week, keep the volume to a reasonable level. Unless, of course, you live in a sanctuary city where there the rules are for fools. But then you might have way bigger problems than noise ordinances. Take care.